The music teacher says it was consensual sex. His former students say it was rape. He had sex with me once in the classroom, um, in a closet. Something happened to me, too. I thought he was our little predator. Why wasn't he stopped? These women seek answers and justice. I'm Julie Ireton, host of a new podcast, The Band Teacher. It's available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Just that somebody could be this diabolical. This is a CBC Podcast. When you look at the, the octopus, it has been tenderized. So to tenderize octopus, you can beat it on the countertop. I don't recommend that because it's going to mess up your kitchen. Some people massage the octopus. You can uh, also buy it tenderized. The broth cook for an hour. You have all the flavors in it. The octopus goes in it. And we're going to cook it for about 45 minutes. He makes it sound so simple. Not everyone is comfortable enough in the kitchen to tackle those tentacles, but renowned French chef Eric Ripert is determined to give us the confidence to do just that. His latest book is called Seafood Simple. Matt Galloway spoke with Eric Ripert in October. Here's their conversation. Massaging the octopus? <laughs> some, some do. <laughs> you just there with the tentacles and just kind of... Yeah. What does that do? It makes uh, the, the octopus tender. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's many techniques to do it, but it works. And it's the most gentle techniques. But it's not in my book, Seafood Simple, no. because that's not simple. That's not a simple thing. Um, I want to talk about the book, but this has been a really hard week. Um, the news has been really terrible. Yes. And there are a lot of people who you get to the end of this week and you're just kind of staggering. And maybe you're looking for something that's comforting. And for a lot of us, we will head to the kitchen and we will cook our way out of this and we'll try and maybe bring people together and, and, and serve them food. What does cooking give you, in a, especially in a time like this? Well, cooking for me is a passion. And uh, it, it's a passion for cooking in a restaurant as a professional. And then on the weekend, of course, I have the passion of cooking for the family and my friends, and it's entertaining. It's a different exercise. Mm-hmm. It's very, very different than being in a professional kitchen. But you create something. You bring people to the table. And when you bring people to the table, you create dialogue, you create relationships. It's convivial. You, uh, you bring uh, people together to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's very important. And I love, I love to entertain. So my, my kitchen is very open and the table is very close and we are interacting all the time. We drink a little bit, not too much. And uh, we have those fantastic uh, memories of meals uh, during the summer, in the in winter is very different as well. Because food means a lot of different things. I mean, it's fuel to people and it's energy, but it's, there, there's something that happens when, whether it's in your kitchen or at a table or in the backyard or on the balcony, when you get people together and, yes. they, and they break bread. Right? Yes, well, as, as someone who's cooking, you, you give a little bit of your soul. Mm. You know, you put so much love in, into the process uh, I hope, I mean, people do that. M- myself, I, I learned from my grandmothers who were putting so much love into the process of cooking. Uh, I, I could feel it when I was eating. What was that table like with your grandmother? Uh, I had a grandmother that was Italian. Another one was from Provence. And Two great food cultures. Yes. 
a little bit similar. Yeah. And they were doing those long tables on the weekend. My Italian grandmother was making pasta by hand, rolling on the table. And then everybody was helping her. And the guys were going fishing and bringing back the fish. She was making fish soup. It was a long table with 20 people. And it was like five, six hours of chaos and happiness and high energy and great food. And I, I have those memories forever. And the other grandmother was a bit uh, less entertaining, but she loved uh, cooking for the family. Mm -hmm. and, and she was very careful of giving us good food, good quality food from the garden. And, uh, and she was baking like the best apple pie and I, I have those memories forever. It's baked right into you. I mean, that, that's part of who you are. In many ways. Yeah. yeah. You cannot prove scientifically that love makes a difference in the food, but I am convinced that you can feel it because I ate many apple tarts that were beautiful mm -hmm. and they were made industrially and it was not as good as grandma tart that was not perfect. Mm. Do you remember, I mean... So much of your identity in the restaurant that you run in New York, La Bernadette, yeah. is around seafood and around what you do with seafood. And part of that might be that, you know, thinking about that tart. A lot of us can remember, I remember having the, an oyster for the very first time. My yes. uncle serving me an oyster. This is this weird, oh my God, it's incredible. What yeah. is this? Do you remember the first time that you had seafood that kind of changed how you thought about fish or what came out of the sea? Yes, Actually, it was octopus. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the tentacles. <laughs> uh, because on the weekend in the summer, in the French Riviera, the family was going uh, fishing and also scuba diving, mm -hmm. and they would bring whatever they would catch. And I remember the octopus hanging on the trees and uh, being ready to be grilled, and my grandmother and, and my aunts starting the dinner, and again, long tables of 20 people under pine trees. Uh, it was um, probably the first thing that uh, I tested. And I was like, wow, this is really, really good. <laughs> and from there, I test all kinds of food. But I was very curious I, as a young kid. I, I had no fear. I could eat anything. Eat anything. Yeah. There are a lot of people who, I mean, seafood can freak people out in terms of cooking it. And part of the, I mean, this goes back to the title of this book, Seafood Symbol. Yes. But why do you think that is? Why do you think of, of all of the different kinds of food, there is something that gives people the fear about cooking seafood? Because I think everybody had at least one bad experience when the, the food that they cooked, the seafood, stank the house. It was so fishy and strong. Even the kids were mad at you. <laughs> um, the fish was breaking in a pan and so on. Because people do not necessarily know when fish is fresh or not. And in the book, we give a lot of tips. Yeah. And, and it's not rocket science. It's pretty basic. But those tips are essential for you to have a beautiful product. Because if you, if you start with mediocre, even if you're a genius in cooking, at the end, it's going to be mediocre. So take us back to, if you go to, I mean, whether it's people are buying at a grocery store or at a market, the fishmonger, yeah. what are you looking for? How do you know that what you're buying is fresh? So it, you can buy the fish whole or you can buy the fish in filet. Most of the time, people buy the fish in filet. The filet should be translucid, not this kind of like a beige, opaque kind of color. You should trust your eyes. If you say some grayish, dry, um, dryness on the, on the seafood, 
it's not fresh. I used to hear that people would say you have to smell it. And you have pe- to pe- people may not want you leaning over the, the you, sneeze guard smelling the fish be, that's on there. Do not be shy about it. Say, please, can I smell the product? And, and they will put it close to your nose. Mm. And it should not smell like fish. Mm. It shouldn't smell like fish. No, it, should, it shouldn't smell like low tide. It should smell like high tide. Uh-huh. And uh, that's key. Then you bring back the filet at home and, and we show you with different techniques how to cook it. If the fish is whole, you look at the eyes of the fish, you shouldn't have that kind of a white skin on the eyes. They should be very bright. If you look at the gills, it should be bright red. If you touch the fish with your uh, finger, the, f- the flesh should spring back mm. quickly. If you leave a fingerprint in it, it means it's old. And then same thing, you should smell the fish. Or if the fishmonger does a, or the, at the store, they don't want you to smell the fish and the place doesn't smell good, well, don't buy from there. Maybe go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. Simple is one of the hardest things to do. It's easy to make things complicated, to trick things up, to make... What is the appeal, particularly of seafood, in cooking it simply? Seafood is very delicate in texture and in flavors. It's not like a steak. I mean, we know steak, you can handle it. And, and it's nothing against meat. Obviously, I, I love all kinds of food mm-hmm. and, and steaks as well. But the way you handle fish, you have to be cautious. And we teach you how to do it. And then the, it's so delicate and so complex in flavors that the more you put in your plate, the more you're going to lose the essence of, of the fish. If the fish is the star of the plate and you start to think about presentations and colors and putting ton of vegetables and adding spices and different sauce and make it super complicated, on top of it, you're going to overcook your fish. So the fish will be tasteless and dry. And then with all those ingredients in a plate, you will, you will forget that it's a seafood dish. That the, that the seafood is supposed to be the star of the plate. Seafood is always... This is our mantra at the restaurant, yeah. but it's, it's the mantra at home as well. It's the fish is the star of the plate. Mm. Therefore, whatever goes in this plate is to enhance the qualities of the fish. There's an entire section of this book around seasoning. And yes. how you go about seasoning yes. the seafood. Tell me a little bit about this. And be- people might think we have to do it before or after, and it needs to have more seasoning or less seasoning. What do you do? A lot of people do not necessarily uh, know how to season properly. So if you season from too high, like you can see on TV sometimes, there, right? There, there's drug, the salt is way yeah, up like in the air. Like three feet from the food. <laughs> of course, you're not, you're not precise. You don't know what you're doing. If you are too close, you don't see what you are doing. And if your hands are not clean and, and dry, the salt will stick to your fingers. You're not going to be precise. So I decided to uh, have a page in a book showing you how to season. So it's basically... Um, you have your hands about a foot apart. About a foot on top of the fish. Yeah. And you start from the left to the right or from the la- right to the left. And you are very consistent with the movement, making sure that you, you look at the grains of salt falling on the, on the fish. And then don't forget to flip it and season the other side, which is a big mistake that a lot of even professional cooks... The fish has two sides. It's two sides. Even I mean, you can apply that technique for any, anything, but especially for seafood. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. 
We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. How do you think about issues of sustainability? I don't know if you saw this. There was a piece in The New Yorker this week, um, an uh, investigation about how so much of the seafood in the United States in particular is harvested by China, and there are concerns around overfishing, there are concerns around the labor on those boats, and, and, and how if you overfish now, we're already seeing this in some species, that there's nothing left for next generations, and you're doing it in a way that's destructive to the environment. As somebody who, I mean, you've written a book about this, but this is your life's work in many ways. How do you think sure. about issues of sustainability? So we address a little bit um, about the sustainability subject in, in the book, but sustainability is, is essential to think about it. I mean, we can't deplete the ocean. We have to think about sustainability on Earth, in the water. It's more difficult in the water because it's a bit nebulous. You cannot see really what's going on except if you have great equipment and boats and, and so on. I have to say, in the US, and I believe in Canada as well, uh, the government is very proactive and very tough with regulations to make sure that the species uh, do not co collapse. And there are specific, you can see ocean-wise and things like that, there are you know, labels that are attached to certain kinds of fish that will say, this is harvested sustainably. These shrimp are yes, sustainably harvested, absolutely. what have you. Can and you we, trust those things? Well, <laughs> I trust them to a certain extent. Yeah. So in, in the US, we have on the West Coast, Monterey Bay Aquarium, that has a list every year. NOAA, which is a governmental agency, has a list as well, that is slightly different than Monterey Bay Aquarium. It gives you an idea of what's happening. And then the government decides uh, about quotas, about uh, when you can uh, catch fish in some areas. They close the areas, they let the fish spawn and, and reproduce, and you have seasons. And, and a great example is the striped bass. Mm -hmm. On the north, northern east coast of the U.S. and Canada, striped bass almost disappeared in the 90s, almost extinct. Thanks to the government and the rules and the efforts of the fishermen, today it's plentiful. We don't know what to do with striped bass. We have so much of it. So mm. it came back very quickly. So we have to be sensitive to that. We have to educate ourselves because farm raise is not the answer to uh, sustainability. So, uh, we, can, we can have wild fish on the table, which tastes better than farm raise for many reasons. And people believe it's also better for the environment. Farm raise? Wild, wild fish. Oh, wild fish for yes, sure. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yes. But we have to be cautious. And again, we are lucky in this, side of, in, in this part of the world uh, and it's a lot of communication in between fishermen and uh, officials, and uh, we protect the species. And for the consumer, it's just about being aware and being knowing what you're buying. For sure. Yeah. At one point, we were eating orange roofy. It will take 25 years to get a f f fish that is one foot long. And then it almost disappeared. We had to stop. So we have to, again, be educated. It, it's very important. You have a huge range of recipes in this book, and they go from ceviche and salmon poke and things like that, yep. that might be a bit more complicated to make, to a salmon that's cooked on a cedar plank, which a lot of us do in the summer, just yes. in the backyard or what have you. What, why did you want to include something like that in the book? The salmon on yeah, a cedar yeah. plank? 
because it's simple. <laughs> the idea was to <clears throat> break down the book into different chapters, and every chapter touched a technique. So marinating, curing, baking, broiling, steaming, um, roasting, and even preserving in a jar. And those chapters have guidance. Mm. We take you by the end, basically, yet picture by picture. Every 20 seconds, we took a picture. And we teach you how to use those, te those techniques that will, uh, again, enhance the qualities of the fish that you are cooking. And seafood is vast in terms of variety of species. And the tuna is very different than a piece of codfish that is very different than the shrimp and the lobster and the scallop. So every chapter is helped It's helping you to make the best tuna ever, or the best halibut, or the best scallop. Or the best fish fingers? Tell and, me about the fish fingers <laughs> recipe, so which the, apparently need to be served with ketchup, not tartar sauce. So the, the, the fish finger was basically a joke, but then I, I decided to put it in a book, because when my son was young, uh, I was making fish fingers for him with broccoli, because I was trying to make him eat, of course, his vegetables, yeah. and he was... Okay with that, but he had to add ketchup. And I lost the battle for ketchup. And as a Frenchman, ketchup, it's a <laughs> bit, you know, for us, it's a he's holding his heart as he's <laughs> saying. It's a little bit tough to, uh, to put ketchup on, on your fish. But when we did the, the book, I said to the photographer, I said, Nigel, let's put some ketchup and, and it will be um, the joke of the, of the book. But at, at the same time, it's what kids want. So it's in the book, it's simple. And your kids will love it, mm. and they will eat their vegetables and seafood and the ketchup with it. When your last book came out, we talked about um, that at the time when people weren't going to restaurants. This is in the middle of COVID, and, and your restaurant, La Bernadette, like every other restaurant, it seemed like in, in, in much of the world was shut down. There were real concerns that that was going to destroy the hospitality industry and destroy the restaurant industry. What's the, what's the state of that industry now? Have people come back to eating in restaurants? Yes, the restaurants uh, are very busy everywhere, at least in America and I think in Canada, because yesterday I was eating somewhere mm -hmm. and uh, a great restaurant called Mimi, I'm sure you know it, mm -hmm. and it was packed. So everybody wants to go to restaurants and entertain and have a good time. And uh, it's strange because we were completely dead, closed by the government, at least in, in, in the US, and then suddenly... We thought it would be like a soft recovery. Not at all. The day we were authorized to open, we were full. What did, I, what did that tell you, that people came flooding back? People, especially in very big urban centers, people have the habit of going to restaurants and enjoy the lifestyle. They like to cook at home, I'm sure, but it's part of being in a big city. You can go to different places every night and have a different meal and it entertain, entertain and have fun with your friends. And uh, again, since we reopen, we are packed. Our neighbors are part, packed. All the chefs in New York are very happy. What do you see as your role? When people come to your restaurant, it's expensive. People save up for a long time yes. to come. It's a big deal for somebody to come. Absolutely. And that doesn't just mean at your restaurant. It can mean because there's a cost of living crisis, it's expensive anywhere to eat. What do you see as, as your role when somebody does that and they show up at your door, aside from serving them and then taking their money, what is, what, is, what, is, what, is, what is your role there? We don't think about the money. Obviously, the money is at the end on, on, the, on the bill. People, you're right, a lot of our clientele 
save a, lo a lot to come and have an event with us. And our job is really to create a very special experience. Mm. But it's very subjective. Maybe you're coming on a date or you are coming in business or you're a foodie and it's just about looking at the plates and you want to put on Instagram your pictures and so on. So uh, the job of the, the team is to basically read your mind and see what you are looking for and then deliver that experience to, your, to you mm. as a client. And uh, we do that pretty well, I think. Uh, it's, it's not that difficult to read the, the, the mind of the client. I mean, when the clients are coming with their briefcase and they have papers on the table and they're not looking at you, you know that they are in business and it's a exp certain experience they want. When you see um, a couple on a date and they're really looking at it themselves and, and kissing and happy, and you know it's a very intimate experience and, and you deliver a different kind of service. And when you see someone who's Uh, looking at the chef crossing the dining room, which is me, <laughs> and he's like taking pictures, you know that person is very interested in, in the process of cooking and eating and taking pictures. And again, we, we provide that experience. And some people come for birthdays yeah. and anniversaries. And again, it's a type of experience that are different than the others. I have a friend, she's a producer here on the program, and she has a restaurant. She said there's two types of people in the world, people who have worked in the restaurant industry and people who haven't worked in the restaurant industry. Do you agree? I've worked in the restaurant industry, and that's yeah. what I did to pay for school. I and it changed my life. Yeah, I think it's very important. To, if you can have that experience, it's, it will stay with you forever. What do you learn? Well, you learn right away humility, that's for sure. Humility. Yes, yeah. because... Uh, Well, if you are in a kitchen, I mean, as you know, kitchens is a very hostile environment. It's not friendly. Uh, the floor is wet. It's humid. It's hot. The clock's ticking. It, the clock is ticking. There's a lot of sharp ob objects everywhere and uh, a lot of people. So you, when you enter a kitchen, it's, it's a very humbling experience. If you are working in a dining room, it's the same. You are there to serve people. And it's, I think, something... Uh, very important in, in your life to have this kind of humility to be, I'm your servant. I'm, I'm here to deliver something to you. Have you seen The Bear? Yes. This great television program about a yeah. restaurant in Chicago and the restaurant industry? Yeah. Is it accurate? Do you think one of the things, and this is not giving anything away, but the first episode of the very first season of The Bear is one of the, some of the most tensest television I've ever seen. It feels like you're going to have a heart attack as you're watching it because everything's happening all It's at the intense. same time. But then you learn about culture and you learn about the relationships that people have and that importance, as you said, of, of humility and of service. Is, that, is it an accurate portrayal of the restaurant industry, do you think? Not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have to say the acting is fantastic yeah. and I'm very impressed with it. And I'm, I'm following the season slowly because for me it's very surreal. I don't know that kind of um, restaurants like that where it's such a mess and everybody's screaming and it's not organized. That's not how you run your business. I have never seen that. Yeah. And, uh, I know probably it exists somewhere because I remember when Anthony Bourdain wrote Kitchen Confidential, mm -hmm. he was talking about pirates in kitchens. Yeah. And he, I, he was a pirate. Yeah. He was a pirate. And uh, I was speaking about 
basically being in the military because I was coming from a very different uh, background. And we had many times some discussions, but I, nev I have never seen and I cannot connect to the ambience of a kitchen that is chaotic and uh, cr basically crazy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bear for me, I I'm watching and I'm like, that's not real. It's, it's, <laughs> acting is fantastic, but uh, no. <laughs> I just wonder whether it'll get people to come to the industry or whether it'll turn them away. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, it's a lot of dysfunctional people in my industry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, today it's glamorous because the media helped tremendously sure. to make it glamorous. But when I started, uh, it was a lot of kids who had bad grades in school, who were antisocial and had a lot of different uh, issues. And we were all pushed toward uh, the hospitality industry. And myself, I had terrible grades in school and I was a bad student. And I was delighted to be uh, pushed to go to culinary school and, and go to the kitchens in Paris and work for restaurants and so on. And that's your home. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I don't know whether you listen to music, uh, whether you're in the kitchen or not, but I had read and then I'd seen videos of you um, with Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. You're teaching him to cook. He's teaching you how to play guitar. What is the connection between music and, and, and cooking? Well, music is not tangible. You cannot, you cannot touch, uh, so, but it exists. And flavors are not tangible. You cannot say I'm putting one ounce of rosemary and one ounce of mint flavor or garlic in, in my sauce. It's all in the mind. So it's very similar than playing music, but you play with flavor, flavors. And uh, it's very artistic in, in that sense. Because music, you have to learn the craftsmanship of being a musician. And then when you have mastered that, then you, you start to understand and you can compose and you have the music in your head. It's the same for us as cooks. We learn craftsmanship, knife skills, which you are not born with, you have to learn. Mm. And then at one point, you, you can start to create flavors. And those are the discussions I have with friends that are musicians like Roger Waters and others. I think a conversation like this was what a lot of people needed after a week like this. And there will be people who on this Friday will head to the kitchen and think about what they can do um, and how they can keep things simple. It's really great to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Eric Ripert is the chef at Le Bernardin in New York City. His latest cookbook is called Seafood Simple. He spoke with Matt Galloway in October. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.